This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and I'm in studio with Onilin Sinsi and Tracy Boomgaard. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. 20 people have been killed during a militia attack in the Democratic Republic of Congo's southeastern province of High Katanga. Separatist groups in Cameroon want mission and privately owned schools to reopen in the country's Anglophone regions after four years of closure. And Togolese Prime Minister Komi Selom Klaso and his government have resigned. Right now though, here's Onlen Sinse with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Zimbabwean opposition leader Nelson Chamisa has threatened radical action, vowing his party will not surrender the MDC alliance name to the rival MDCT led by Togozani Kupe. Chamisa has warned that they would henceforth take to a radical response to the onslaught against them by President M. Nangagwa's government. Kupe's party recently declared they would use the name MDC Alliance in by-elections to replace Chamisa's MPs and councillors uh, whom her party MDCT recalled on the strength of a court order. Speaking in public for the first time in months after the destabilization of his party allegedly by collaborations between Kupe's party and the ruling ZANU-PF, Chamisa said he would not give up his party name. The by-elections are set to be held on December 5. Kenyan Jubilee lawmakers allied to Deputy President William Ruto have asked President Uhuru Kenyatta to dissolve Parliament over the two-thirds gender rule as advised by Chief Justice David Muraga. The MP said the President should adhere to the requirements of the Constitution he swore to uphold by dissolving Parliament and call for fresh elections. The Chief Justice said the President failed to enact the gender rule and should therefore seek a fresh mandate. The global COVID-19-related death toll has surpassed the 1 million mark and the number of infections now stands at 33.3 million. The COVID-19 pandemic has severely hampered global economic growth and has seen all nations implementing various lockdowns to stem the spread of the virus. Meanwhile, South Africa, which has the highest infections rate and death in Africa, the recovery rate has increased to 90% with the number of COVID-19 fatalities standing at 16,398. Zoleka has more on South Africa's latest figures. South Africa's recovery rate now stands at 90%, translating to 603,721 recoveries of the over 670,000 total cases. The country only has 50,647 active cases. Meanwhile, of the 22 new COVID-19-related deaths, seven were recorded in the Eastern Cape, five in Guazanadal and the Northwest each, three from the Western Cape and two from Gauteng. 
A scientist who did pioneering work on curing a patient with HIV through a stem cell transplant says their work has enabled them to come up with a rapid COVID-19 test. Professor Ravi Gupta, who is also involved in HIV-AIDS work in South Africa's Kwazulu-Natal province, has been named as one of Time magazine's hundreds most influential people in the world. Gupta explains how the rapid test was developed. It was a remarkable story. Um, Coincidence or um, fate, uh, uh, I'm not sure which it was. Um, But uh, because I had a contact with this, um, the company that made the the platform, uh, I bumped into the same individual here in Cambridge where I'd moved only last year from London and uh, and saw that that uh, I, I saw that person and we started discussing diagnostics for COVID and 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 it all went from there. A scientist who did pioneering work on UN human rights experts have asked Nigeria to release a 22-year-old singer condemned to death over an allegedly blasphemous song, saying the sentence broke international law. Yahaya Aminu Sheriff was sentenced last month by a Sharia court in Kano, the commercial hub of Nigeria's mostly Muslim north. After he was accused of sharing the song on WhatsApp, the UN experts say applying the death penalty for artistic expression is a flagrant violation of international human rights, as well as Nigeria's constitution. They say Nigeria should overturn the sentence and guarantee the singer's safety. Now, looking for your sports news, up next is Musibodi Makura. Thank you, Onela. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, Kenyan President Uhuri Kenyatta on Saturday presided over the reopening of the Nyon National Stadium with a warning to Sports Kenya to ensure that the facilities that the government is constructing and refurbishing are managed well. The Nyon National Stadium was closed back in 2017 for renovations ahead of the failed Africa Nations Championship tournament that saw Morocco step in to host the event in 2018. Meanwhile, President Uhuru directed Sports Kenya and the Ministry of Sports to ensure that all stadiums under constructions or under construction across the country are completed by December this year. Among the arenas under construction are the Moyen International Sports Centre Kasarani as well as the Kipchoge Keno Stadium in Alderet. South African Darren Binder took his first win in Moto3 in Catalonia, Spain on Sunday as two of the main world title contenders, Albert Arenas and John McPhee, had to abandon. Now, Binder, whose older brother is Brad, who rides for KTM in MotoGP, started way back in 20th position on the grid but came through to take the victory. This is how he described his first ever Moto3 win. I tell you what, the feeling is absolutely indescribable. I mean, <laughs> you know, Barcelona is a special place for me because I took my first ever points in World Championship here back in 2016. And uh, to get my first victory here is pretty sick too. And I mean, yeah, I've been threatening for a long time and I've just and haven't been able to make it possible. And today I had absolutely everything down to the T. So it was just a fight to the end. And uh, I can't thank the boys enough. And uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just over the moon. I mean, to my parents back home, thank you guys. I mean, I wouldn't be here today without them. And I uh, love you guys lots and I'll see you soon. <laughs> well, those are sports news at the summer. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinzi. SABC News. 
independent and impartial. From an African perspective. At least 20 people have been killed during a militia attack last weekend in the Democratic Republic of Congo's southeastern province of Haikatanga. This happened as the Bakata Katanga militiamen targeted the provincial antenna of the Congolese National Radio Television and the Kasapa main prison in Lubumbashi, the capital city that, uh, of that mineral-rich province. Jean Obamweza reports from Kinshasa. The 20 people who have been killed during last Saturday's attack include the three policemen, a military and 16 Bakata Katanga combatants. The warlord Ridion Kyungumutanga's militia wanted to take control of the official radio television well known as RTNC to free prisoners from the Kasapa main prison and indeed to make sure this country's mineral-rich province of High Katanga falls under Bakata Katanga. The big question remains how how come the militia combatants have succeeded to freely enter the Lubumbashi town? Adrian Poba, an opposition MP, believes the government is failing to protect the citizens. He has then called the President Felix Tshisekedi to do more for the Congolese people's safety. The main mission for a state is to protect its people. But what's happening in the DRC shows there is no state authority. We call on the president to improve security sector and to equip police and the army with proper means for them to properly keep the security of Congolese people. This is not the first time for the Bakata Katanga militia to launch attacks in that southeastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. At least 32 people were killed in March during a joint attack by the same militia in Lubumbashi, Kasumbalesa, Likasi and Kakanda. But what are the true reasons of conflict here in the DRC? Diego Zorilla, the UN humanitarian coordinator in this country, has given this answer. There is immediate causes and there are profound root causes. I mean, at the root cause of everything is probably the high poverty rates. Uh, 63% of the population in the DRC is poor. The DRC is presented sometimes as a country that is filled with riches and filled with resources. I mean, this is actually not true. I mean, there are some mineral resources yes, but the population of the DRC is overwhelmingly very poor. And this poverty fuels and the lack of opportunities derive in young men seeking to act a living out of uh, their participation in criminal gangs, which is of course highly reprehensible and something that needs to stop. Meanwhile, the UN coordinator believes that the government can still succeed to address the conflict causes for peace to come back here. Once more, Diego Zorilla explains. The root causes requires development opportunities and requires the conditions, the creation of the conditions for stable development so that people have other opportunities rather than taking taking weapons. Those that take weapons, though, have to be persecuted and have to be persecuted by the criminal system and because their impact, the impact that they have on the overall population, particularly in the East, is huge. Hundreds of armed groups operate in these countries' eastern side. Most of them have no clear political agenda gender, but illegal exploitation of natural resources. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Some separatist groups in Cameroon say they now want mission and privately owned schools to reopen in the country's anglophone regions after four years of closure. They, however, warn that they will destroy any government school that reopens its doors and attack children and parents who return to government schools. Cameroon has, for its part, 
launched what it calls a vigorous campaign for the schools to reopen on October 5th. And Cameroon military says it has, liberate, it has liberated, liberated more than 100 establishments from rebel occupation in weekends fighting that killed at least nine rebels and several troops. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's Ministry of National Education says it has dispatched hundreds of its staff members to English-speaking regions to campaign for schools to reopen on October 5th. Bernard Mbuel, a pedagogic inspector, is one of them. He says the future of 400,000 children is at risk should schools remain closed. When education is attacked, you have a generation that is failing. There is no succession. You have increase in cycles of crisis because conflict cannot be resolved when the children are not educated. You find children evolving while those that are conflict-stricken cannot evolve. The children will not be competitive in the job market because they are not educated. 41-year-old laboratory technician Philomena Aye fled fighting in the English-speaking northwestern town of Batibu to the capital Yaoundé in July. She says she wants her younger siblings to have education without which their future remain bleak in a highly competitive world. I'm really glad for the children to go back to school. They should go and learn. They have forgotten so many things. For now, they are in the house. They only eat. It's not really easy. Play. They have forgotten so many things. Cameroon military reports that within the past four days, troops chased separatist fighters from at least 100 schools in the English-speaking northwest region. The Catholic Church said the corpses of two soldiers were seen in the northwestern village of Kikaikelaki. Deben Chofo, the region's governor, did not confirm troops were killed, but says at least nine fighters lost their lives and 12 others were arrested in Kumbu, Ndop, Santa, Bafut and Wum. It wasn't an easy process, but they are doing their utmost best to secure the region. And it is hoped that come 5th of October, we must have improved on the security in this region to allow schools to resume. We have asked the population to organize themselves in vigilante group to create security around the school. Chofo said the attacks on schools used by fighters as hideouts is carried out simultaneously with the school's reopening campaign to make sure children have their education. We instructed all those that are afraid to declare themselves at the level of the regional delegates. And we are organizing escort to the teachers who are still here in Rwanda and planning to go back to their various schools all over the Northwest region. They shouldn't be afraid. They should just only put their name in the list at the regional level. And the security services are taking necessary measures to bring them to their various schools. In fact, it is part of the security device set up to organize and mobilize the security services to secure class resumption. Separatist spokesperson Capo Daniel admits that some fighters were attacked. Capo says the separatists now want mission and privately owned schools to reopen in the country's anglophone regions after four years of closure. He says fighters have been asked to maintain government schools closed. 
In terms of the school resumption, which is a complete ban of all schools that are sponsored or functioning under the Cameroon Ministry of National Education. In terms of the Cameroon government schools, we have complete non-tolerance. In areas that we control, we have opened up community schools and the teachers who are providing the educations are doing so on a voluntary basis. The government of Cameroon this week said the military will escort teachers and students who want to return to schools in various towns and villages. 26-year-old teacher Shuri Quinta, who escaped from Kumbu to Yaoundé after she was assaulted in June for encouraging schools to reopen, says their security is not assured. Continuous kidnapping and beating of staff and students of these regions is an indication of inadequate security. I so much long for schools to reopen but in a secured atmosphere. It therefore falls on both sides of the ongoing conflict to guarantee the security and to institute confidence-building measures. Otherwise, we are going to be heading for an illiterate society and its associated ills. The United Nations says Cameroon's four-year separatist conflict has left over 3,000 people dead and half a million displaced. The crisis started in 2016 when teachers and lawyers took on the streets to complain about the overbearing influence of the French language in the bilingual country. The military responded with a crackdown and separatists took weapons claiming that they were defending civilians. They asked for a school shutdown and vowed to make the English-speaking regions ungovernable. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Togolese Prime Minister Komi Selom Klaso and his government have uh, resigned in an expected political reshuffle delayed by the coronavirus pandemic. The move was anticipated since President Faure Nassibe was re-elected in February for a fourth term in office after a constitutional change allowed him to run again. The election win extended more than half a century of dynastic rule over the former French colony by Nasibi's family. For more on what the government uh, change means for Togo, Channel Africa spoke to Mohamed Lamin Saeed Khan, a Togolese human rights activist. My understanding of uh, the situation in Togo, uh, that I know that the, the, the president is actually have violated uh, uh, again the constitution to allow him to run for this um, fourth term in mandate and as well clinking to the uh, powers, uh, maintaining the, you know, the clink on powers by his um, family. He's not in the family for 38 years now. So I think it's a, it's a smart political move of uh, shifting. Um, this is my own thinking. My own analysis gave me that it's a smart political move of the president, um, you know, changing the, of, of, you know, influencing the families and team to, to resign so that he can, um, you know, have his ground more stronger by having um, people who will support his political agenda or who will help him to gather more stronger uh, votes or, uh, in, in, in that coming election next year. Now, what do we know in terms of what Klaso has been able to achieve uh, during his term? Is there anything that you can pinpoint as one of his successes? Yeah, I know what, uh, what I will pinpoint more of it is going to be more on the human rights violations, uh, you know, <laughs> that they have been very good at cracking down on um, uh, peaceful protesters and also been very strategic in dismantling the 
cohesiveness of the uh, of the um, the coalition um, civil uh, coalition political parties that have tried to influence um, you know change in in, in in Togo. But again, um, the the Togolese the Togolese people have been fragmented by by their strategies. So I've not seen much progress in terms of um, um, in terms of their performance. You spoke earlier about uh, the culture of uh, human rights violations that has been uh, entrenched in uh, Togo. What are your wishes as human rights activists uh, who have been uh, uh, focusing more on what is happening in Togo? What kind of uh, government would you like President uh, Foreigner Singbe to appoint? Yeah, I obviously want to see him appoint uh, a government that respects the rights and the aspirations of the Togolese people. A, pre- um, a, a government, a team of government uh, officials that will ensure they work by the law and ensure the war, the, the, the law actually um, is becomes the driving force of what they, what they, what they, how they rule the country. And I'm, and I'm, I'm hopefully also that uh, the, the the government will be very much transparent and then will fight against corruption and corruption practices across across the board. And as well, uh, be a very good listener for the citizens and then citizens' aspirations and allow um, you know freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and then um, and, and a great space and open space for civic and political. Uh, participation in in Togo's process. And that was Mohamed Lamin Khan, Togolese human rights activist on the line from Dakar in Senegal. He was talking to Kumbelo Mujalele. With high-level meetings ongoing to address the climate and biodiversity crisis uh, center stage at United Nations headquarters, one of the Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group members is urging world leaders to make sure their decisions get back to the people that help shape policy on the ground. Ernest Gibson is is coordinator for 350 Fiji, a regional youth-led climate change network in the Pacific driven by young climate leaders, and he told Julia Dean, UN's country team in Australia, it was important to let groups like this know that they've made a difference. For me, there are three reasons why we should be continuing to engage young people. And the first reason is around young people are the only demographic that has the opportunity, the agency and the capability to be able to respond really quickly and effectively to situations that need a response. In the Pacific, we see a really clear example when it comes to responding to natural natural disaster. You look at any cyclone that we've had over the last 10 years, any development sector agency that's worth their salt will tell you that young people have been at the forefront of driving the transformative change to ensure that the response to the crises was done effectively, ethically, and, and quickly. And so that's the first reason, is the reason we engage young people is because without <laughs> sounding too biased, we get the job done. But the second reason, and I think, is perhaps more important is because young people have the most vested interest in the way in which the future will pan out. We are in a really unique sort of nexus position where we have the ability to see the learnings from generations before us, but we also are the generation that will be guiding and creating the next generation through the next 35 to 50 years. So our interest is not just our own, but also the interest of ensuring that our children have a life that is something that is worthwhile and something that we would like for ourselves and for our children. And then, of course, the third reason is because youth will be the population that drives future innovation. 
So the reason that we work with youth now is not because we want them to feel cool and fancy and like social influences now. The reason we work with youth now is to ensure that we're laying down the foundation so that humanity and societies going forward are, have a fighting chance. Because at the end of the day, the leaders that we have now that are, you know, pushing retirement age won't be there 25 years from now to see their plans to fruition. So we need to be able to instill enough drive and capacity in young people to ensure that the future that we have is not just one that we want, but it's uh, it's a reality. With the, there's a, the Biodiversity Summit coming up in New York, do you talk to the elders and learn about the effects of climate change on biodiversity loss in Fiji? I think you've raised probably one of the most important points that the climate warriors have discussed over the last two to three years. And it's around ensuring that conversations that we have are not just conversations between young people or conversations between policymakers or conversations between governments and key stakeholders, but actually conversations that are intergenerational and multi-stakeholder in every sense of those words. Um, and so a lot of this is around how can we ensure that we're learning from past practices? How can we ensure that we pay tribute to the indigenous knowledge systems that already exist? And how can we use these to drive ourselves forward? So it's about looking back to ensure that we are going forward stronger and together. So in answer to your question, I suppose the short answer is yes, we're talking to each other all the time. And and so this, this for me is really important. And with the dual challenges in the Pacific where you are of COVID-19 and climate change, do you think that the young people can maintain the energy to rise to these challenges? I'm not the most optimistic person in the world, but this is something where I can actually say I do think the answer to your question is yes. Because I've seen not just Pacific Islanders, but Pacific Island youth time and time again being able to be faced with some of the most difficult situations come out of these stronger. And there is a general recognition that despite how difficult the socioeconomic state in the Pacific currently is as a result of COVID-19, recognizing that we haven't had the health crisis uh, touch wood um, that many countries have had, um, but that we're having, we're facing a very different type of crisis. Um, but in, even in the wake of this kind of disaster, I've seen youth, but also multi, multiple layers of society coming together to recognize that one, in order to get out of COVID-19, it means that we need to think of the world as something that we need to redesign recognizing that everything that we've done before this has not prepared us sufficiently to be able to take a shock as large as COVID-19. And that links in really clearly with some of the other things that climate warriors have been fighting for for years. And that it's not just about reducing carbon emission targets, it's actually about overhauling a system that is fundamentally broken. And so I think if we are able to do this together, absolutely we can maintain the momentum because the goal is still the same. It's to change the system that doesn't work. So your message to those that will be gathering in New York to discuss uh, the effects of climate change on biodiversity and other areas that affect biodiversity, what would your message to the people gathered there from the climate warriors of the Pacific? There are so many things I would like to say, to be honest, but I think if I were to distill it into a couple of things, it would be first and foremost, find ways of ensuring that you're listening to communities and that communities are driving the work that you are doing. Because at the end of the day, anybody in the development sector must be working to ensure that we're bettering the lives of communities that we claim to serve. And the only way that we can do that is if we're listening to the communities themselves. So first message is find ways of ensuring that you're listening to communities, you're engaging communities in dialogue, but more importantly, 
you're going back to these same communities and explaining to them exactly what you did with the information that they provided you with. Demonstrate to them how they have influenced your processes. And the second one is include youth. And this isn't just youth alone. It's every other social demographic that often is left at the fringes of society. Include them in your beginning. Think about how, how does this affect youth? How does this affect persons with disabilities? How does this affect women and girls in rural communities? How does this affect people living in informal settlements? And then allow that to influence the next phase and then the next phase, and not just invite them to the big fancy event at the end. So those are my two things. Engage communities effectively and ethically. And secondly, engage youth and other, and other social demographics from the beginning phase up until the end and not just at the end. And that's Ernest Gibson, coordinator for the 350 Fiji, a regional youth-led climate change network in the Pacific, speaking to Juliet Dean, the United Nations country team in Australia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment. To our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. And now it's time for your latest news headlines. Here's Onel Nsinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Zimbabwean opposition leader Nelson Chimisa has threatened radical action following claims by rival MDC Tea Party to use the name MDC Alliance in the coming by-elections. People returning to Belgium from Rwanda will no longer be obligated to undergo testing for the coronavirus pandemic on arrival to the European country. And global COVID-19-related death toll has surpassed the 1 million mark. Channel African News, I am Onelensinzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Womanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Womanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity with Dr. Amalea Gonez-Malka 
every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Fragile gains made over the past decade to advance women and children's health are threatened by conflict, the climate crisis and COVID-19. This is according to a new report released on Friday from the global movement Every Woman, Every Child, or EWEC. The report examines the deep-rooted inequalities, uh, inequities rather, which continue to deprive women, children and adolescents of their rights, noting birthplace as a significant determinant uh, of survival. For more on its findings, we are now joined on the line by the UN Child Agency's Jennifer Hokwejo, uh, who is behind the data analysis. Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, Jennifer, could you talk us through the key findings of this report? Sure, yes. So the report is, is divided up into three main sections. The first is to try and give a sense of the progress prior to the start of the COVID pandemic. And it's a mixture of good and uh, bad news. The good news is that before March of 2019, deaths for children under the age of five had reached an all-time low around the world. Maternal deaths had similarly dropped by around 35%. And we have um, reached a, a much higher level of intervention coverage of essential services, um, with some interventions reaching over 80% coverage. And there was uh, a lot of increase in political commitment to the Every Woman, Every Child movement, including 776 multi-stakeholder commitments and over $186 billion to improve women, children, and adolescent lives. However, those positive uh, trends mask some hidden in inequities and also some continuing problems around the world with conflict and climate change. So in terms of inequities, there were still birthplace and wealth status still drive a lot of the whether women, children, and adolescents survive, thrive, and reach their potential. So at the moment, we have an increasing concentration of child and maternal deaths in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia as the two regions in the world that are lagging furthest behind. Um, also, of course, maternal newborn child and adolescent mortality rates are higher in all countries that are affected by conflict. 
And it's important to note that climate change is still threatening the lives of all children, adolescents, and women everywhere. Despite COVID-19, we can't lose the momentum that we were starting to generate around climate change and the reduction of conflict. So the second part of the report goes into this, the whole issue of commitment tracking um, for women, children, and adolescents. And as I've already pointed out, in the past decade, there was a, a large increase in the number of commitments and the amount of money that was allocated to women, children, and adolescent health. However, the latest survey that was sent around to commitment makers shows that around half of them um, are expressing some concern about their ability to make good on commitments made and their ability to make commitments in the future. So this is very concerning as we're on the cusp of a global financial crisis, economic crisis, that we still um, hold firm to our commitments to women, children, and adolescents. The third section of the report focuses in on the impact of COVID-19 on women, children, adolescent lives. And the part of the focus here is looking at around the world's um, disruptions in essential services. So um, through some surveys that have been conducted by WHO and UNICEF, um, there have been reports of widespread disruptions in essential services for women, children, and, and adolescents with some of the more preventative interventions like immunizations and bed net, net distribution being the hardest hit. There is some evidence of recovery in places where lockdown measures have been lifted, but it remains to be seen as the pandemic continues on the ability of countries to maintain essential health services. Other ways in which COVID is impacting the lives of women, children, and adolescents is through the global economic crisis, which is resulting in um, expected increases in the number of, of people living in poverty and experiencing hunger and reduction in their ability to afford essential health care and food. There's also, of course, been a lot of disruptions in, um, in, in education services, uh, which puts a long-term, can have a long-term negative impact on um, the success of, of children and adolescents as they grow up. And there have been increasing reports of domestic violence. So those are some of the key findings, but there are many ways forward and reasons for optimism. The report stresses that uh, one major way through which the world can recover um, and not lose a lot of ground to the COVID-19 pandemic for women, children, and adolescents is to, again, think through how we can best leverage uh, multilateralism through um, initiatives like the Every Woman, Every Child, gathering partners together to leverage resources and maintain political visibility for women, children, and adolescent health. Um, there's also a strong emphasis on in, in strengthening country health information systems. I think COVID-19 has made evidently clear that countries need regular high-quality data for just routine programming and then also to make sure that they're able to track the pandemic and its impact and able to maintain services um, during those times. So I will stop there and turn it back over to you. Those are the main results from the report. All right. And what's at stake if the world fails to act now? Why does this report matter so much? So this report matters for many reasons. One is to, again, have a spotlight on women, children, and adolescents, and that even as 
countries must respond to the global pandemic, which is affecting everyone's lives, that we don't lose sight of women, children, and adolescents in this last decade towards the achievement of the SDGs, which include elimination of all preventable deaths among children, adolescents, and uh, pregnant women. Um, so it's a critical, it's a crucial time point because we're sort of over six months into the pandemic. We're aware of how it's been impacting service delivery and, um, and our financial outlook. And it's just important right now at this moment, especially given that we're during the UNGA and that there are only, uh, we're, we're, we're closing in on the 10 year mark for the 2030 goals that we don't lose sight of these um, of making sure we still achieve SDG three and uh, that we keep women, children, and adolescents in the center. Over. Right. And uh, what are some of the key recommendations of this report in terms of what can actually be done realistically? So realistically, I think there's um, a lot of emphasis on making sure that we don't lose sight of the existing. So, so one is to, I think it's sort of, sorry, I'm just thinking through what's the best way to, what's the best way to phrase this. So I think realistically, we, there's still all of the commitments that have been made. There needs to be um, a lot of pressure placed on commitment makers that they need to fulfill these commitments, which is a, a large amount, a substantial amount of financial contributions to women, children, adolescents. So I think that's one. I think that's very feasible to hold people to account for their commitments. Another is that I do think it's um, possible for multilateral organizations to improve their coordination and to um, maintain their efforts on the ground, as well as, um, in, you know, all the efforts that they do to support countries in monitoring and in service delivery, that that must continue. I think it's entirely possible for governments, for countries to assess what's happening as long as, you know, to figure out what is happening with the, with the global pandemic in their own context and to make sure that as they're addressing the pandemic response, that they make sure that resources are not totally, dis, you know, that, that they don't um, defund or divert healthcare resources away from those core services that need to be in place for women, children, and adolescents. So I think all of those are entirely possible. I think a lot of it is particularly this last issue about countries being able to take stock of the situation on the ground um, does depend upon strong health information systems. So I think that that's another area where uh, global partners can help support, can come together and help support countries, making sure that they have these information systems in place and to help them analyze and assess the information for planning and prioritization. All right, Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. You too. And that's Jennifer Hukwejo from the United Nations Children. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. 
Hello Africa, welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game here on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. My name is Asanda Peta. What uh, GDF Forum is about and what an opportunity it provides specifically for the audience of Change Your Game. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. More support, just like invest more in young creatives and entrepreneurship, but actually do it, don't just talk about it, actually do it, you know, because there are a lot of creative minds, there are a lot of intelligent human beings in our country, so I think they should invest more in that and take it seriously, because it's a real thing. Catch us every Friday at 900 hours Central African time with Channel Africa, the African Perspective. The release of the United Nations Local Biodiversity Outlooks outlines critical role of indigenous and local communities in safeguarding biodiversity. The second Local Biodiversity Outlook assesses the views and contributions of indigenous and local communities, the IPLCs, to the conservation of biodiversity, finding their vital role has been disregarded to date, marking a missed opportunity as the world seeks to address the dual challenges of climate change and biodiversity loss. The report published by the Forest People's Programme argues that IPLCs are critical partners in protecting biodiversity and that because uh, the majority of the world's land would secure biodiversity. Director of the Campaign for Nature, Brian, Brian O'Donnell, joins us on the line in Colorado in the U.S. Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Well, firstly, Brian, what is the United Nations Local Biodiversity Outlooks and why is it important? So the Local Biodiversity Outlooks is a review of the engagement of local communities and indigenous people in safeguarding biodiversity and nature on our planet. It's, it's important because it shows that the, the role of conserving nature isn't just the responsibility of governments, but also communities and, and local people. And it shows how much that work contributes to the global goals of sustaining nature and all that nature provides for us. And were you shocked at the findings of the report? And please take us through some of these findings that you've uh, long been concerned about. Sure. So the the report itself, um, I think, um, made some things that indigenous communities and local people have been saying for a long time, that they are at the forefront of conservation, that they have been um, doing this in a way that isn't recognized by by global leaders and governments uh, and, and is not financed nearly at the scale that it needs to be. And that if we are to change and make conservation of biodiversity more effective, we need to make sure that they are integrated into the global leadership and the discussions about biodiversity finance 
it's something that they've been saying for a long time. So in some ways, that's not shocking. But what is what is shocking is how little the world has been recognizing this, uh, that um, governments, business, philanthropists, conservation organizations have not been giving them um, the uh, rights to their land tenure that is deserved, the recognition about their contributions to biodiversity, or engaging them in the conversation as much as they deserve to be given how effective they have been as stewards of nature. So I think that, that uh, those recommendations are critical, and if we all listen to them and we start to recognize that the rights to land tenure engagement and cooperation with indigenous communities, local communities is the key to a more successful biodiversity conservation agenda going forward, we will be much more successful. And why should the findings of the report on the key role of indigenous peoples and local communities in protecting biodiversity be taken seriously? I think if you look at some of the science in recent years, uh, they have concluded that indigenous people and local communities have been effective stewards of biodiversity. In fact, they compared their management and uh, tenure and safeguarding of nature compared to some of our best protected areas and realized that they outperform them in many ways. Some of the most intact natural areas on the planet are managed and led by indigenous people and, and local communities. And so if we are to look at a model that works going forward, we need to learn from their approaches and, and look at that view. Um, we have had a primarily sort of Western view of, of conservation for many decades, which in some areas has been very effective and other areas that haven't. Um, we've also seen that some of the Western approaches to conservation have um, disenfranchised indigenous people or have displaced local communities. And to end, and there needs to be a new approach that learns from different knowledge systems, puts them at the center of conservation, and, and works its way forward. If we're going to safeguard biodiversity and get us out of this global crisis, it will be important that we try to look at all the different approaches for nature conservation, learn from those most effective ones, and move forward. And the local biodiversity outlook shared some great recommendations on how that can happen. And it also called for um, more resources from the global level to flow towards those local communities, which we think is critical. All right, Brian, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Appreciate your covering this issue. Anytime. That's Brian O'Donnell, director of the Campaign for Nature, joining us from Colorado in the United States. It's now time for your latest economics news. Here's Tracy Bloomgard. Thank you. G7 finance ministers have announced their support for the debt cancellation for vulnerable countries. In a statement, the ministers also encouraged an extension of the G20 debt service suspension initiative into next year for the world's 73 poorest countries. In April, the G20 agreed to a process for the 73 poorest countries to stop paying debts through 2020. This has allowed 43 of the poorest countries to free 5.3 billion US dollars to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. South Africa and Mozambique will host a two-day virtual trade and investment webinar under the theme Developing Afrocentric Solutions and Forging Partnerships in Response to COVID-19. 
The webinar will focus on trade and investment opportunities available in Mozambique. The webinar will build up on previous outward trade and investment missions held in the country. Total trade between South Africa and Mozambique has been on an upward trajectory between 2015 and 2019. Founder of Economist.co.za, Mike Schusler, says South Africa's unemployment figure is expected to have climbed to 34% in the second quarter, from 30.1% in the first quarter of this year. Statistics South Africa is expected to release the much-anticipated job numbers for the second quarter of 2020, following a month of postponements on Tuesday. The expected increase in the unemployment rate is attributed to the hard lockdown implemented from March in an effort by government to arrest the spread of the coronavirus. Schusler says an even bigger increase in unemployment can be expected next year. Unemployment is always a lagging indicator. A business has a problem, uh, they don't make their income, they try to keep you, and especially when you've got these extra UIF payments, pay out, they'll keep you a, a, a longer, but the business say doesn't turn around, uh, that means that four or five months later you only lose your job. That's the first thing. The second thing is in the every year we get about 600,000 new uh, people entering, net new people entering the job market. And obviously by next year, uh, the first quarter, we will see those people and they will struggle to find jobs in the beginning. South Africa's Tourism Minister Mamaloko Kubai Ngumani says all those who will enter South Africa when its borders open on Thursday need to prove that they have tested negative for the coronavirus before they can be allowed into the country. South Africans will be able to travel abroad and international visitors will also be welcomed into the country. Kubai Ngubani says the international market is a key stakeholder that can assist South Africa on its road to economic recovery. She says health and safety protocols remain a priority and will be strictly adhered to. South African government has not abandoned its mission of balancing lives and livelihoods. And that's why you can see we didn't open for everyone. We have categorically said that we'll open for countries that are not high risk. We said when they come here, we'll request them to prove that they are not positive. So meaning the certificate that they will prove that they are COVID-19 negative will be one of the barriers that prohibits anyone who is sick to come in. So we are putting measures not to compromise South Africans' health. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari has sent the long-awaited oil reform bill to the Senate to be signed off before the bill can become law. A copy of the bill, seen by Reuters, shows the bill would privatise the Nigerian National Petroleum Company, amend changes to deep water royalties and scrap key regulatory agencies in favour of new bodies. Nigeria is Africa's largest crude exporter. It would also scrap the Petroleum Equalisation Fund, which used to distribute cash to keep nationwide petrol prices uniform. The U.S. dollars trading at 379.87 Nigerian Naira, 11.43 Botswana Pula, 107.64 Kenyan Shilling and 19.94 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, 1 U.S. dollars trading at 5.55 Brazilian Hail, 78.11 Russian Ruble, 73.57 Indian Rupee, 6.82 Chinese Yuan and at 17.10 South African Rand. 
The U.S. dollar is also trading at 78 pence to the British pound and 85 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,852 and platinum at $853 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $41.72 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. This is Africa Digest. And that's how we wrap up this hour. Be sure to join us from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. But right now, taking us to the top of the hour is Nguelo by Rob Malinga featuring Sfiso.